your Bibles, follow along with me, John 3, 16. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You may be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today, and I'm very grateful for your presence with us. We're always encouraged by your presence, and we encourage you to come back and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock. And then, while I'm on that point, let me invite you to our spring gospel meeting, which will begin this coming Sunday, Lord willing, a week from today. Brother Rick Brumbach from Austin, Texas, will be with us. He'll be conducting our meeting this year, and we're very happy that it's that way. And we've been planning this and praying for this and encouraging others to come and be with us. The theme of the meeting is Christianity in a Modern World. And I surely hope that you and I can see how important that theme is, as it seems as though with every passing year, another challenge to Christianity emerges. How shall we respond? What shall our response be based on the Scripture? And that's much of what we're going to be talking about. That's the theme of our meeting be Sunday night, 6 o'clock next week, and then each evening, Monday through Wednesday, at 7 o'clock. So I hope you'll invite your friends, your neighbors to come and be with us and to enjoy and worship together and enjoy the fellowship that we have planned, and the elders in their announcements will have more to say about that, and I encourage them to do that, but I certainly wanted to extend that invitation to you as we come together this morning. I have before you what I called the greatest verse. And you may seem to question my judgment on that. How can you say, out of all these great Bible passages, that this is the greatest Bible passage? After all, aren't all of them inspired? And indeed they are. Aren't all of them important for us? Yes, they are. Aren't all of them coming from God in his inspired word? Yes, they are. Is there one verse of Bible that we could say this is the greatest verse? Perhaps this is an opinion on my part that it is the greatest verse. You have your favorite passages, as I do. Acts chapter 2 would be one of my favorite passages. Romans chapter 12, what a great passage on Christian living that is. Genesis chapter 22, what a great chapter that is about Abraham and Isaac and the angel of the Lord coming and staying the hand of Abraham before he slays his son. Or think for a moment about Hebrews chapter 6 and what a great chapter Hebrews 6 is, talking about faith and conviction and trust and obedience to God. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, how could you find a more beautiful a sublime theme than what is dealt with there in the 20th chapter of the Revelation or Revelation chapter 7. There are just any number of passages that we could say, uh, these are our favorite passages. Now, no one can take a passage to the exclusion of all the others. That wouldn't be proper either. But could we say in our matter of opinion that there's one great passage that stands out that really speaks to our heart and really speaks to our mind. In my mind, it would have to be John 3.16, which you've just had read before you this morning. Thank you, Lynn, for reading our scripture, and Brandon for leading our beautiful singing today. Thank you for that. It has been called the Bible in miniature. Some expositors have called it the golden text of the Bible, John 3.16. 
It has won the hearts and the minds of many, many people. And people have thought about this verse as they cross over into Jordan's other side. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I think the value and some of the great value of this verse was impressed upon me when I was but a student. And there at David Lipscomb, what is now David Lipscomb University, Brother Gus Nichols spoke about John 3.16. And he did such a marvelous job. I, I had never heard it proclaimed like that before. And I came away thinking, what a wonderful sermon that was about a great Bible passage. It was Gus Nichols who said, For God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest thing, the world the greatest number, that he gave his only begotten Son the greatest gift, that whosoever believeth in him, the greatest faith, should not perish the greatest tragedy, but have everlasting life the greatest blessing. And he went on from there to talk about John chapter 3 and verse 16. Now since that time in my work in preaching and teaching the gospel to others, I've seen that paragraph I just read many times in bulletins and heard preachers preach about it. But it's Gus Nichols who first said it from my perspective, from my experience. And he did such a wonderful job with that. I'll not be able to preach his sermon. I couldn't do it. I'll have to preach my own sermon. But I go away along with him thinking that John 3.16's got to be the greatest verse in all the Bible. And before you criticize that and before you try to find fault with that idea, let's study John 3.16 for a moment today. And I don't know that time's going to be generous enough for me to say all about it that we'd like to say. We may run this over into another sermon on another time. But one of the things we'd have to say that it is a Bible passage that speaks to the great matter of God's love for us. As you'll notice in the passage, he did not say, for God loved. But he did say in the passage, for God so loved. There have been a number of Bible passages given to us talking about the great love of God. For example, if you turn with me today in 1 John chapter 4, I'm beginning the reading at about verse 18, verse 19. There is no fear in love, John says, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen uh, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, continuing with verse 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Isn't that a great verse, great passage of scripture? While I'm here in 1 John 4, talking about and reading about the great love of God for us, I'd like to turn to verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a great passage that deserves to be marked in the pages of the Bible. God is love. Now, a lot of times I read about faith in the Bible. And I've mentioned already Hebrews chapter 11. What a great passage about faith that is. About conviction and about trust and about obedience. 
But I don't read in the Bible where the Bible says God is faith. And one of my favorite subjects of the Bible would have to be the subject of hope. And you read about it in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and great passages like that. Great passages about the Christian who has hope for eternity and hope for the future. But I've never read in the Bible where the Bible says that God is hope. But I do read in the Bible where the Bible says God is love, which really elevates God above all of the imagined, invented gods of this heathen world. There have been a lot of them that have been promoted among men and tried to foist them upon us as people. This culture would create their God in their minds. This culture would create that God in their minds. You'd have the God of war and the God of lust and the God of hate, and they would create these gods in their mind, and they would actually worship them. You read in the pages of the Bible how that even mothers and fathers would sacrifice their children to false gods and pagan gods. How they could do it, I do not know, but they did. And they would sacrifice their children to those false gods. But in the Bible passages that we are reading, God sacrificed his son for us. It was not us sacrificing for him, he sacrificed for us. For God so loved the world. He didn't just love it. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's got to be the greatest verse in all the Bible. Elevates Christianity above every other world religion. All the other world religions, inventions, and myths of man. New Testament Christianity, the revelation from God Almighty, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love of God for the world can be seen in a lot of ways, can it? The love of God for the world can be seen in the created world. Look how he loves by the way he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And it takes but a casual view of the world in which we live to be amazed by it. And you can take the strongest telescope and go go as far out there as you can, or you can take the strongest microscope and go as far down into the world as you can, and you're going to be amazed at the intricacy and the complexity and the design of the world in which we live. God so loves this world that the sun, the moon, and the stars... They function just exactly the way God wants them to function. You can see the love of God in the Word of God. How much God loves by giving us his Word. You know, God in his divine mind shared this great revelation with us. He gave us the Word of God and how valuable it is and how important it is, the Word of God. We go and when we read the Scripture, we know we're reading the thoughts of God. Isn't that amazing that we can go to this volume translated in a language that we use every day and we can carry this corpus of scripture around with us in one volume and it's very handy. You go to any store just about and buy a copy of scripture and today they're on e-readers and all kinds of electronic devices making it even more readily accessible. God's word is out there for us. It has to be an attestation to the love of God for us. God shows his great love by giving his thoughts Now, the Bible's not the complete corpus of Scripture or complete uh, exhaustive volume of all the mind of God. Nobody can understand that. God knows so much. 
Why, he couldn't put it all in one book, but he gave us what we needed to know. He, through the Holy Spirit, told us what he wants us to know so that we can obey him and follow him and live with him forever and ever. An illustration of God's great love for this world. One of the great illustrations of God's love would have to be the fact that we're able to become children of God. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I read for you 1 John chapter 3, the verse of verse 1. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? That God has made us children of God. When the Bible uses the phrase, children of God, it is saying... Here are people who live like him, who emulate him, um, who have characteristics like him. Uh, here are people that show characteristics of God, just like I'm the son of my father and the son of my mother, and I show certain characteristics and qualities of him. So sons of God, children of God, men and women of God, show characteristics and qualities of God, and that's what that prepositional phrase means, children of God, and that's what he's made us. He's made us children of God because of his wonderful grace and our obedient faith. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 9. God's love can be seen, though, and maybe this is the supreme element or manifestation of the love of God. When he gave his son to die on Calvary's cross, Jesus died on that cross for the sins of the world. And though we don't have time to talk about all of that wonderful historical event, still, when you read it in the gospel accounts, you see the working of God behind the scenes. Even though Jesus was performing the miracles and teaching those great godly parables and, and doing those wonderful acts that we read about in the pages of the Bible, Still, you see God working behind the scenes, bringing this thing, these things about so that his son would be brought to that point in time, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, born of a woman, born under the law, so that redemption for mankind could be brought about and be made a reality. You and I are children of God today because of our obedience to the new birth repenting of our sins and confessing our faith, being baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. For the remission of sins. What a great word remission is. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. The sin guilt has been taken away. I'm no longer under the guilt of sin and the burden of sin because Christ has taken it away by making that atonement, by paying that price which was his blood. What an act of love that would be. There is a great height to the love of God. It's so high it never has a top. There's a great depth to the love of God. So deep that it never has a bottom. There's a great breadth to the love of God. And that love without limit. And there's a great length to the love of God. So long that it cannot be seen at its end. And so for a moment, let's see by studying the scripture
something of the dimension of the love of God in our life. In the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, to help us understand something of the love of God, how great it is for us, tries to make a 3D kind of illustration, if you will, beginning at about verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, I'm trying to understand that. I'm reading the Bible and I'm looking at these great verses and I'm trying to see what does all that mean with regard to the love of God. Well, here's a great illustration. Paul says, I hope that you'll come to know something of the breadth and the depth and the length and the height of the love of God. How great it is. Surely that will motivate each and every one of us to live the kind of life we ought to be living for God. And if we're not children of God, surely that will motivate us to become obedient to the gospel of Christ <clears throat> by our obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. So I propose this morning, looking at the greatest verse in all the Bible, for God the greatest being so loved the greatest emotion. Let me see if I can in my limited way come to understand something of the great love of God. And what I want is the first one. It's breadth. That's what he says in verse 18. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth of the love of God. Now to say breadth of the love of God simply means that it is so broad. Why, it takes in everyone. There is no race, there is no rank, whereby the love of God is not known. Everyone comes under the purview of the great love of God. Uh, one of the great gospel preachers we've had in an earlier day, Brother J.M. McCaleb, I was somewhat uh, taken with Brother McCaleb, though he had passed along before I, I came along. He was the very first to carry the gospel, as far as we know, to the island of Japan. And there are a number of uh, congregations of our Lord in Japan today. The congregation where some of my children attend in Memphis take that on as their special project. Their preacher is fluent in Japanese. And he goes back and forth to Japan, and they support that. They support a lot of the work, the mission work that is being done in Japan. J.M. McCaleb was from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And Sister McCaleb, even after he passed away, a longtime member there at the East Main Street Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where I had done gospel meetings, say, not the heathen are at home, and beyond we have no call. For where sin is gone must go his grace. The gospel is for all. McCaleb, in writing these particular words, helped us see just the breadth of the love of God. Nobody had ever thought about taking the gospel to Japan until J.M. McCaleb had done that. I was preaching in Oceanside, California, on a men's day, and a man sitting out there, Donovan uh, Fox, his name was uh, Hardiman Fox. Hardiman Fox. I'd heard of Brother Fox. Brother Fox sort of had taken the footsteps of J.M. McCaleb. 
Brother Fox was just a young man when Brother McCaleb was there in Japan. Brother Fox could speak fluent Japanese. And I enjoyed eating lunch with Hardiman Fox. Listen to him talk about the work of preaching the gospel to Japan. What a great work those men have done. And I admired him for it. Admired him greatly, though he, an elderly man now, by the time I got to know him, got to be acquainted with him. These men saw something of the breadth of the love of God in that it takes into care everyone that God wants all men everywhere to obey the gospel of Christ. And it's not limited to any particular rank, any particular climb, any particular race. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. If you'll repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, you become a New Testament Christian, added to the church of the Lord. It's not just a local commodity where we, whereby we keep it in this town or this state or this country, but we take this message throughout the world. Why? Because of the breadth of the love of God. There's no holding it back. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's the breadth of God. That Jesus has tasted death for every individual. It helps me understand something of the great love of God when I try to see it in a three-dimensional type of pattern. Because I'm a human being and that's the way I think. And by inspiration God is telling me, think of it this way. Though you cannot fully understand it. Though you fully cannot grasp it. Try to think of it in this fashion. Try to think of it as the great breadth of God, whereby it includes each and every individual. But then, he talks about its depth. Paul, in this passage, Ephesians three seventeen through 19, talks about how deep the love of God goes. It has no bottom. To say that the love of God is deep is to say that it doesn't matter how sinful you are, you can be the recipient of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God by your obedience. I've actually talked to people who have said to me, as I would sit there and try to show them great Bible passages, but I have been a sinner so long. I've been involved in such sin, I just can't get out of it. Yes, you can. We have been involved in sin for so long, there's no changing us. And the idea that we can't change doesn't come from the pages of the Bible. You can change. In Acts chapter 2, the depth of the love of God is directed toward murderous Jews who had taken the Son of God and in turn um, killed him. In Acts 2 and 36, when Peter finishes this great sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You did this. And Peter's making it very clear in Acts chapter 2 and 36. You didn't put to death some itinerant carpenter. What you did, you put to death the very Son of God, the hope of Israel. You put to death the Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, 
We, re we didn't realize how deep in sin we were, but yet the love of God reached down and picked those people. All those people who would repent of their sins and be baptized into Christ can be favorable, receive the grace of God and receive forgiveness of sin. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what you've done. If you'll repent and obey the gospel, you'll be the recipient of the grace of God. And what makes that possible but God's love? Turn with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now this is a powerful passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at about verse 9. And it is a serious one you and I need to consider carefully. He's talking about those sensual Corinthians that lived in a world and in a clime that was wicked, much like ours. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, this is what it says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. <clears throat> you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the kind of life they used to live. But now you've been washed. Now you've been sanctified. What is it that caused the Word of God to reach down into such licentious, wicked hearts and to change them from darkness to light and from the power of God? I'm reading 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and I'm trying to understand something about the great love of God. It's the depth of the love of God that would reach into the hearts of sinners like that and change them. That's the kind of people I may be speaking to today. There may be someone in this audience, such a fine audience, that you found yourself mirrored in that passage of Scripture, if you have, rest assured. You'll not inherit the kingdom of God living like that. But you can inherit the kingdom God of God if you'll change from that and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the love of God is so deep, it'll reach right down and catch the most wicked person and turn them around. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. Here's an interesting passage. 1 Timothy chapter 1, the verse, verse 15. I've read this passage many times. I know you have as well. <clears throat> You'll be familiar with it upon reading it. 1 Timothy 1, 15. The saying is worthy and deserving of, of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now watch this. Of whom I'm the foremost. A love of God reached down and grabbed a blasphemous man like Saul of Tarsus and turned him into the most energetic, faithful gospel preacher, second only to Jesus himself. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. That's the depth of the love of God that he'll reach down and catch sinners like you and me. And when we faithfully respond to him freely, 
as we should, as the Bible teaches, we'll receive the forgiveness of our sins. But Ephesians chapter 3 and the illustration that Paul gives not only talks about the breadth and the depth of the love of God, it talks about the length of the love of God. And this is an amazing point for me, and I know that I'm not capable enough to really focus upon it properly, but it is an amazing passage of Scripture. And I'm thinking about Ephesians chapter 3 in the same chapter that I've been working out of about the depth, the height, the length, and you think about the length of the love of God. Now, he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose, Ephesians 3.11, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, let me analyze that passage just for a moment. By the time he writes this, he's in a prison cell. It's about A.D. 60 to 62. As we learned earlier, Paul is an older man by this particular time. And he's writing about this. And he writes about the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Now, the word manifold wisdom is an interesting phrase there in the original language. The Greeks would use those phrases to convey the different hues and colors of a floral arrangement. And let's say you had a lot of beautiful flowers out there, a lot of different colors in those flowers, and that would be the manifold, the variegated color of flowers. And they would really appeal to us because of all of the different colors and hues that come together the manifold, the many different facets. And he applies that word to the love of God. And he says the many different facets, the beautiful different elements, the angles, the different designs of the love of God has been made manifest. And here's a very interesting phrase we ought to talk about by rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It has been made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, Ephesians 3 and verse 10. I'm trying to analyze this first to understand something of the length of the love of God. And he says, uh, you know, this has been set forward to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about the angelic world. He's talking about the angels around the great white throne that we studied about in the book of Revelation. And when these angels want to see something of the great length of the love of God. What do they look to? They look to the church, which emblem is emblematic of the great, variegated, colorful wisdom, the many-faceted wisdom of God, whereby both Jew and Gentile are brought together in the one church. Now notice that he says in verse 11, as I study and analyze this verse, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this church, which really shows and manifests the wisdom and the love of God that he's describing in Ephesians chapter 3 here, which the angels of glory look at and see the great wisdom of God, was in the mind of God before the world ever began. You know, none of us have any trouble going back 30 years, 40. Some of us maybe can remember 50 years. 
Maybe you can remember longer than that. And let's say, let's go back 2,000 years. Well, when we read the scripture, we have no problem with that. We have no problem going back 2,000 years ago by reading the word of God. Well, let's go back even further than that. In our minds, we go back, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness upon the face of the deep. We have no trouble going back there. Genesis chapter 1, we're able to go back there by means of eyes of faith, and we read the scripture. We can go all the way back to the very beginning. But this passage is saying, go even back further than that. That the church was in the mind of God before the world ever began. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3 and verse 11. There's never been a time when the church of the Lord did not exist in the mind of God. It was his eternal purpose. The church was established in Acts chapter 2. And men heard the gospel and they obeyed the gospel and they were added to the church. Men were added for the first time to the church of the Lord, the kingdom of Christ, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, verse 41. But in the mind of God, this great plan and its length would all the way back into eternity. Now let's go in the other direction. Let's go over here. Where the church, the people of God, who will be with God forever and forever in eternity. Not only does the scripture carry me one way, but this scripture is also carrying me in another way. It carries me off into the future. That there will always be the church of the Lord gathered at the foot of the great white throne in the book of Revelation, worshiping and praising God for his glorious gift, his son, who purchased salvation for you and for me. There was never a time in the mind of God, even before the world ever began, that the church did not exist in his mind. Men were added to it at the first time in Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. There in turn, Acts chapter 2 tells us of that great event. But there will never be a time off into the future, even when time here on earth comes to an end, that the church will not be in heaven with God. That's the length of the love of God. There'll never be a time when you can outrun God's love. He talks about one other element in this particular passage, Ephesians 3, that helps me understand the greatest verse in all the Bible. For God so loved. And there he talks about the great height of the love of God. And to illustrate that matter, I'd like to turn to this biblical commentary, Colossians chapter 2. And in that, I notice verse 2, and I'd also like to look at another verse of Scripture which will help me understand the great height of the love of God. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. You see, working together. And then in Colossians chapter 3, I have in mind verses 12 through 14, which I ask you to read along with me. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Colossians 3 and 13 now. Bearing with one another and of one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. The height of it gathers us all together that when we understand God's love for us, we grow in our love for one another. What a wonderful gift when God said, God so loved the world. The height of it causes us to work together, causes us to love one another. It's sort of the cement that puts it all together. The height of the love of God, sort of the mortar between the bricks that holds the brick together. It's love that we have one for another. And because I've learned of God's great love for me, I learn of my great love for you and your great love for me. It's made active. Let's say you had a son. He's your only child you had. And uh, you're home that day. You're busy around the house like we always are. But your son sees that the house across the street's on fire. And he knows that there are people in that house. So your son races out of that house, runs across the street, and at the risk of his own peril, rushes into that house and saves that mother and saves that father and saves those children, wearing them of the fire, getting them out of danger. But in the process, he dies. And then there's the funeral. People are coming together to show respect for the loss of such a brave young man. But the people he saved are not there at the funeral service because they were too busy staying at home watching television. There was a special ball game on that day, you see. And so they didn't come to the funeral service. They were busy watching television. How would that make a mother-father feel when their son gave his life for other people and the other people who were saved show no respect for their son? You see, the great love of God makes me want to respond in kind toward you out of love and respect. That's the height of the love of God. When I read the greatest verse in all the Bible, so God so loved the world, it makes me want to respond out of an obedient heart. I want to respond to that love by having loved myself toward God and toward others. And the kind of hypothetical scenario that I drew for you would cause us to say that must be the height of disrespect to find other things that were more important than the death 
of this young boy and honoring this young man who saved our life must be the height of disrespect, the height of disregard for us not to love and respond. It ought to cause us to love even more. It ought to cause us to love our fellow man more and the one who gave his life for us even more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son I believe I'm well within the mark when I say it's the greatest verse in all the Bible. Because it motivates us to repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3, and confess our faith and be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins and help others see the same and toil and work at living the faithful Christian life as God has taught us to live it and there receive eternal life in the life to come. Will you not respond to the greatest verse in all the Bible? Won't you become a Christian today? Won't you repent of the attitude which you have that needs to be repented of and become the faithful child of God, the dynamic individual who loves God and loves others? This morning, while together we stand and while we sing.